Hello and welcome back to Gentle Man, redefining manhood in the 21st century. My name is Arjuna. I'm your host. Today I'm excited to be bringing another guest to the show, another old friend of mine. Her name is Shura Egan. I've been looking forward to having her on the show for a long time, so I'm really glad that we finally found the time to get together and have this conversation. Shura does incredible healing work. She's been working as a therapist for a long time, but she actually has a background in a lot of really cool stuff. She got a master's of science in clinical mental health counseling with an emphasis in somatic psychology from Prescott College. She studied experiential attachment psychotherapy and also Hakomi through the Meta Institute. She's done an accelerated experiential dynamic psychotherapy immersion training, and she's also a level one breathwork facilitator. So she brings a really multidisciplinary perspective in her work. And also through her years of private practice, she's just worked with a lot of men. And so she has a lot to say about common male issues and how to address them. So I think you're going to find this conversation very valuable. I was really, really excited after the conversation and in listening back, there's just so much good stuff here. So I hope you enjoy it. I'm delighted to be joined today by my old friend, Shura Egan. Say hello, Shura. Hello. It is a real pleasure to have you on this show. I'm feeling a little bit sick today, so I'm going to try to keep myself together as much as possible. But if you're hearing that in my voice or if I do a little bit of coughing, I apologize. But I did not want to miss the opportunity to have the lovely and talented and insightful Shura on the show today. We've known each other for a while, and we've had many conversations over the years about many things, but I have actually really appreciated, Shura, your insight into men and men's challenges. And now you actually work as a therapist professionally, Mm -hmm. and I'd like to hear you share a little bit about the work that you do and the perspective that you come from when you're working with your clients. Sure. I'm a somatic therapist. I work experientially. And I have a private practice in Michigan. A lot of my approach and my training comes from the Pacific Northwest. So I'm using perspectives that don't really exist where I currently live, which is a really interesting interplay amongst cultures and people being drawn to work with me, even though they've never really experienced the languaging that I may use in a session with them. My practice is really honed in toward clients that are adults and working with what feels like stuck memories in their body from early childhood attachment trauma or event-based trauma in their homes, clients that grew up with parents that were cruel or just couldn't be there for them in ways that they really needed, a lot of like embodied aloneness And adaptation to aloneness is a big theme that I see in my practice. And I really try to come toward my clients with a perspective of wholeness, like holding their wholeness in my field while I work with them, holding the wholeness of people in their lives that they're processing trauma around so that they can kind of release that and just focus in on whatever wounding or or pattern they're trying to heal from. That's a really big focus of mine is really holding people in their wholeness and believing in the wholeness of each person that I work with. As is this kind of 
returning toward our individual stories in a way where we're looking for what may have been missed, like moments where there was a missing experience, there was a missing nurturing or love or presence or togetherness or or whatever it may have been that just wasn't there. And in that missing experience, something got cemented and then often just reincarnates itself like over and over and over throughout the lifespan as the body orients toward trying to get this experience met. So a lot of my work is using mindfulness or different ways of being in a mindfulness state of consciousness to kind of go toward these missing experiences where we can workshop kind of live in the body, how to get that need met, whether it's something that could be met relationally with us or we're opening up the person's heart and body toward the universe in some way, like moving toward the mother or moving toward the father in the universal principles that may be available to them in their life. It sounds like really profound work. I feel some envy for your clients because Mm. I'm like, man, I I would love to work with Shura. Mm. (laughs) It's really great work that you're doing. And I'm really glad that you are a channel for that. Well, I think it's really needed. I mean, I think what you're naming is something I hear. I mean, it, it puts an interesting amount of responsibility on me, which I'm constantly working with and like just letting the universe hold that responsibility. But I think what you're naming is something I hear all the time. Like we just need more deep focused relationships where we're sitting together in the grist of what didn't get to happen and really trying to hold space for befriending all of the stuff that comes up with that, all of the ways that we have learned to armor ourselves and adapt to those missing experiences and to like try on new states of being and to move toward hope again and to move toward flow and movement in the energy body and the physical body and all of that stuff that's part of of healing something that's very core. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up because that's moving towards my next question, which is about men's experience. Um, Because I think men, uh, especially now, are really coming so much up against that kind of armoring and the the challenge of that work. So what percentage of your clients are currently men? It's shifted over the years, but in in more recent years, it's been pretty 50-50. It's pretty balanced in my practice. I'm sure that over the years, you've started to see some repeating themes in the men that come into your practice. And I'd be really interested to hear more about that. What do you find specifically the men in your practice um, bringing to you? What are the reasons they come to you? And also, what do you observe them struggling with? The one that stands out the most is coming to me wanting to work on, put it in quotes, anxiety, and anxiety being a code word for every other emotion. So (laughs) anxiety being like just somehow the acceptable word for sadness or fear or panic or aloneness. So it's uh, whenever I hear that word, like I want to work on my anxiety Until I know someone, I have no idea what that word is 
substituting for. I just know it to be somehow a less scary term than fear or sadness or, you know, whatever we may put in there. So that's, I think, the first thing I see. And isn't that typical? I feel like (laughs) that rings true of so many men's experience of being like, uh, I'm having an uncomfortable feeling. I don't really know what it is. Uh Uh-huh. And I need to do something about it. And I don't know what to do about it. Right. Beautiful. What you just said, merging into that is just a general sense of confusion, especially because I work with the body. A lot of that, you know, if we're tiptoeing into somatic work, we're not doing like deep processes yet. We're just sitting together and, and trying to get to know each other and trying to understand what's happening. A lot of what I'll be asking is, you know, what does that feel like? Let's go into that experience for a moment. It might be really difficult to describe, but see if just any words come to mind, any descriptors come to mind. And a lot of times it is like just one part of the body that a man will have access to, like his chest, like my chest feels heavy and tight. And that will be like the main experience or just a general sense of confusion and popping out of the body because it feels really uncomfortable to stay with those sensations for very long. So yeah, an overall sense of confusion and overall fear of being in the sensations of the body and just it not being like a very comfortable known territory to be in. Yeah. Which, I mean, that resonates with me when I started to get into my feelings and my somatic work. I mean, still, honestly, I've been doing this for about 10 years and I still so many times have difficulty locating sensation and then really understanding what that sensation is and understanding the emotion. And sometimes I need to go through several layers of different emotions to really find what's at the core. Well, and I think that movement, I mean, what you're naming, I'm hearing some of the wisdom in in what you're naming because you have spent so long on this journey, is that sensations move. So I think sometimes when we start the process, we bring in some fear, some unconscious fear into it. And that fear wants everything to have a meaning really fast. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. It wants it to make sense because then we can problem solve and then we can no longer experience this, right? So it's not actually a befriending impulse. It's a how do I stop feeling this as quickly as possible? So if this can mean something, I can fix it. The more time you spend in the body, the more you learn that sensations are sometimes just sensations. Sometimes they move. Sometimes it moves somewhere else. Sometimes it gets bigger and goes away. Sometimes it is very repetitive and seems to be very meaningful. There's all kinds of ways that the body is holding and moving and and releasing things. And sometimes it's not all that meaningful. It like moves and releases on its own if you just pay attention to it. And sometimes it does seem like, oh, it opens up and now we have a core memory or we have something that has some meaningful content to it. I love that so much. Touching on that kind of classic male impulse to just fix things (laughs) and and be done with them, right? It's like fix and walk away kind of a thing. And what I hear you talking about is my body is my life. 
or my sensations are my life. Absolutely. There's no getting away from them. There's no getting away from this. Right? It's kind of like, <laughs> do I want to be in relationship with my life or do I not? Right. And do I want to be an ally to my body or do I want to be in turmoil against it? In the work that I have seen myself, like if I look at myself working with the men in my practice, I think a lot of that work ends up being some of the basics of noticing that you're having an experience. So we're starting with that. I'm having an experience, things happening. And then learning to name, okay, this is, even if you can't name the emotion, like naming the sensation behind it. So I feel kind of nauseous in my stomach right now. And then bringing some kind of statement of understanding, like moving to this next level where we start to tell ourselves how we make sense. So before we're looking to fix anything, we move toward how we make sense. And where I think that this links to so much of our childhood trauma, all of us having grown up in the generations that we've grown up in, is that most of us didn't grow up with parents that told us how we made sense. And what do you mean? I just want to get clear when you say make sense. Yes. What does that mean? That we are responding appropriately to our environment. That we're having an experience that's understandable. I see. We're receiving sensation and then we're interpreting that sensation or we're understanding what that sensation means to us. Is that right. what, what you're saying? Right. Okay. And there is a lot of individuality that comes in here, right? Someone may have may feel things more intensely, naturally than someone else. And you see this amongst children. I mean, every child has big emotions. That's part of the, the nature of childhood and neural development and, and all of the stuff that's going on. But some children really are harder to hold space for than others. It takes a lot longer. It's more intense. It feels a lot less comfortable. And so I think unless you grew up with a parent that was like, you know what, I'm going to be in this with you and I'm going to ride it out with you. We're going to watch that emotion peak. And sometimes when you receive comfort, it peaks in even more. Someone, sometimes if someone says, someone holds you and says, it's okay to cry, you cry harder, right? So that emotion starts to peak and then the emotion falls naturally. Nothing has to be done other than letting that emotion take its course and then the body starts to balance itself again. And if you don't have a caretaker that does that with you and then maybe talks to you about what's happening and creates sense out of it and understands you're sad right now, it's okay to be sad. It makes sense that you're sad. That's the make sense. Your friend said something mean to you. Yeah, it makes sense that you're sad about that. But I think so many of us grew up with parents that were uncomfortable with emotional displays. So the goal was stop being sad or stop being angry or behave in a different way because I'm uncomfortable with it and this isn't how children are supposed to behave. So go to your room or feel this alone or just stop altogether. And that's, you know, our early training in don't let the body make sense. Don't let the body have emotions. 
don't ever learn to trust that an emotion is going to peak and fall on its own. So a lot of what I see with men, I see, and I see this with women too, but a lot of it is retraining ourselves to trust that our body can have an experience and it can get big and that's okay. And to trust that it's also going to fall and balance on its own without us fixing anything. And that the more kindness and presence and validation we can give to ourselves going through that process, the more resolution is gonna occur with that set of sensations. That's so profound. The two places that I see men getting most hung up on that specifically with their conditioning is I think one, they're worried that someone's going to make fun of them or give them a hard time for having a big emotion because that'll happen from their peers. Their peers will call them a pussy or something else, right? And I think that that's something that specifically men get a lot of. Mm, Yeah. And then I think the other one is that men are worried that their big emotion is going to hurt someone. Because again, there's this men are encouraged to be violent. And I also think that a lot of emotional repression means that sometimes when their emotions do come up, they're big. And so I think sometimes men just feel like there's not enough space in this room for how big this emotion might get. Mm -hmm. Or me really getting into this might actually hurt someone in this room. Yeah. With some of my clients, they get stuck in anger. My male clients, they get stuck in anger and there's... Anger is such an interesting emotion because it's it feels like poison often in the body when it's there all the time. But it also has this kickback of energy and rightness. Like you can just keep in this funnel kind of energy experience of anger for a long period of time because there are these, you're feeling the costs of it and you're feeling the benefits of it. You're feeling how it could harm someone and then you're feeling right about it. Like it just keeps somehow, it's a clo- It's a pretty tight circuit. So I see that happen where my impulse might be to work with that particular client on nervous system regulation. So we might be, or I might be proposing that we work to kind of bring in some balance by doing some parasympathetic nervous system activities like certain kinds of breathing or yoga or float tanks or, or whatever it may be that could help bring some coolness to that fire. And I, I have found that there's so much resistance. There's so much armoring when that rightness and that tight circuit is there. So that's one thing that I've noticed and that I've, I've noticed. Well, can I ask you? Yeah. Why is that armoring there? Why are men resistant to, I don't know, is it, are they resistant to changing their state? What is it that they're resisting there? It's a good question. I mean, I think what it's felt like to me is they're resistant, that particular kind of client that's struggling with that system is resistant to feeling calm and feeling good. There's something about what they're feeling that feels justified and is reinforcing them feeling betrayed or wounded or or whatever it is that the, the anger is going toward, that if they were to allow themselves to feel good or to feel at peace in some way, it would almost be like giving up 
the control or giving up the rightness. I mean, that's been my sense, but I am kind of curious how that lands with you as you are filtering that through kind of the, the experiences of men that you're reflecting on. What occurs to me is that there's probably a number of incentives, right? And I, th- I think you touched upon them, right? Like one of the incentives is that, yeah, it feels powerful to feel right. And then I suppose the other one is that you're highlighting is that coming to a state of relaxation might feel vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? If I'm, if I'm giving away my anger, then I'm putting down the sword. And what does that mean? Where will that leave me? And, and then another thing I hear you saying is, maybe if I give this up, I'll have to reconsider how right I was. Mm. Or maybe the thing that I thought was the problem, which is, oh my God, like that guy's such a jerk. Maybe the real issue is I got my feelings hurt. Mm-hmm. And that made me feel vulnerable. And, you know, I'll, I'll be damned if I want to go around feeling vulnerable. As oftentimes stepping outside of anger or or going beneath anger, as I think we've all experienced, is grief. And grief is so exposed and so vulnerable compared to that rightness that, that comes with anger. I have this memory that comes up frequently for me when I'm working with men. And it's such a silly memory, but it's me in high school out with a group of my friends and a few of uh, my guy friends shipped like it was super cold and they didn't have coats on and they were doing They were bracing their bodies in every way that they could. Like you could visibly see it to not appear like they were shivering. (laughs) 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 It's such a goofy memory, Uh, but it is like it, it brings so much compassion to me because I am aware for all of the women's stuff that I work through, it's not that. I don't work through that. If I'm cold, I shiver and I don't feel shame about it. I don't feel like I have to mask the fact that I can be impacted by the elements. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's very basic when you put it like it's that, right? It's very basic. That we're, it's like a very normal human like, experience. That we're vulnerable to the world. And I think if you have grown up as a, as a man and you've been taught, you can't appear vulnerable to the world. At all. At all. Not even to something as basic as cold. You can't be hungry. You can't feel cold. You can't. Then there is already, there's built so much infrastructure around not being vulnerable. Hence, like, people coming to me for anxiety and us really being there because their mom was mean to them or their dad had addiction issues or friends bullied them for years or or whatever it may be that we're, we're masking as, like, this cold clinical term of anxiety. Wow. That's such an important observation about how men won't even let themselves be vulnerable in small ways. Mm-hmm. And I, I think in addition to that just being very sad, I also think that it results in men not getting their needs met a lot. Absolutely. 
And then, you know, they get resentful and maybe that resentment builds up into anger. And then all of a sudden they're exploding at their partner about something that doesn't matter. So there's a whole constellation of challenges that pops up as a result of mm-hmm. men not being able to do things simply like acknowledging that they're cold. I'm in this men's group and one of the men was recently posting about how his cousin died and he was talking about how he's experiencing his grief and he's also trying to regulate his mental health and he's trying to keep it together for his family. And I was just witnessing so much pressure on this man and so many conflicting impulses. Like I'm a mature man wanting to grieve and... I have a family that relies on me for X, Y, and Z. And I could just see the complexity of that experience. Without fully understanding the moving dials, there's just something extremely complicated about that. And of course, all human life is complicated, but I think, again, that's, that's a particular male complexity. Really having to gauge, when am I safe to have my feelings? When am I safe to break down? When am I safe to admit that I'm cold? When do I get to have the experience of just being present in my life? Well, it's so interesting because as I'm hearing you speak, I'm like, yes, and I think that there is a mirroring that's now happening with women with some of this particular kind of wounding in their adult relationships with men because of some of the ways that this has ended up working out in the relationship sphere. So like, if you take a man who is not comfortable being vulnerable and wasn't raised to learn to really speak very clearly about his emotional experience, his relationship needs, to be comfortable having explicit dialogue In a relationship, you take that man and you place him in a relationship with a woman who, let's say that they have kids. And so this man isn't comfortable being explicit really about his emotions. So when the stress now amplifies in the home because of kids, he's probably going to get a little bit more distant. He's going to start pulling back his energy more even if he's having that kind of struggle that this person you named was having, wants to show up, he's having some kind of internal struggle. So then the woman now is going to be experiencing all of this responsibility and the inability to actually feel her feelings or go and lay down for an hour and have an emotional experience about whatever's happening for her. She's going to be on. And then there's going to be this mirroring of like, she can't be vulnerable because there's nobody to be really vulnerable with. And he can't be vulnerable because he doesn't know how to be vulnerable in himself. 
right? I mean, that's becoming a very common, like the embittered woman in the relationship and the distant man. And both of them are suffering. And both of them start to mirror this armoring and inability to really deepen into an actual state of vulnerability. There may be emotions being thrown back and forth, but that real vulnerability that's going to lead toward repair and intimacy just isn't happening on a consistent basis. That's so true. Yeah, there's so much wisdom in that. It also makes me imagine as well, I can imagine that a woman in that situation might have that similar experience we were talking about earlier where she's like, I don't even know if I can slip into full vulnerability here because I might get pretty big. Sure. Like, I might be pissed. And I might be worried that this man's not going to be able to handle how angry I actually feel about this, especially since men in general are conditioned to think of women as not being angry. Mm. Or like an angry woman is is like a witch or something, yeah, right? It's like a, <laughs> some kind of like terrifying and inhuman archetype or something. So a lot of men are prepared. For, they're not prepared for women's anger. That sounds like a heady brew. You know, bringing it back specifically to to the topic of men, what happens with that is it just causes more confusion and more suffering for the man in his experience because he doesn't really understand, like he hasn't already built this friendship with himself where he's able to be vulnerable even in his own body with himself. So I think then there's like danger from the outside now coming in around feeling blamed or feeling not enough or feeling whatever that is that is getting projected. So I just think that there's so much missing experience around just emotional attunement to yourself and, uh, and friendship to your emotions and believing that what you're experiencing is real and valid and not dramatic or not, you know, some of these words that get thrown around to emotional expression, dramatic or insane or crazy or all of this stuff that criticizes emotional expression, that we can have big emotions and they can be valid for us, for our life story, for how we experience the world. So I think without that infrastructure, there's just this fallout of like, if we can't be vulnerable as human beings and if men can't be vulnerable with themselves or in their relationships, they're going to struggle with their emotions and then they're going to have really unsatisfying relationships, which is sad. You know, I have, I feel a lot of grief for that because we want to feel like we're capable of having deep, intimate, enriching experiences with ourselves and with other people. Yeah. And one of the things that jumped into my mind when you were talking about all this was I was like, In that scenario, a man and a woman, one of the first places that you'll see start to suffer is like the sex life Mm -hmm. or the intimate connection, Mm -hmm. because it's really hard to be intimate with someone that you're angry at or that you have resentment against or someone you don't feel safe around. And one of the tragedies that happens for men, I mean, for, for anyone really, is that when the sex stops happening, 
they get really fixated on that. Mm-hmm. And then that's like an additional barrier. Mm-hmm. Or right. instead of it becoming like, why can't we connect? Why can't we be honest with each other? Why can't we be vulnerable with each other? It becomes, why aren't you having sex with me? A lot of men in the absence of having a broader palette to draw from when it comes to understanding emotions and sensations and connecting with people, sex will become a large part of how they feel connected. Yes. Yeah. It'll become a large part of how they feel safe, how they feel validated. It often gets flattened out into like men want pleasure or men want to, want to be stimulated or whatever. And I think that's true. But I also think that, yeah, in the absence of these other avenues, men just actually get a lot from sex that they're not getting in other ways that they could be getting. And I think that that's one of the reasons why men fixate on sex so much. I mean, boy, there's so much to unpack here. This is super (laughs) fascinating to me. But as long as I'm talking about this, I'm curious to hear you reflect on that aspect, you know, the the sexual aspect of, you know, your male clients and what they struggle with. and, And what do you see there? I mean, it's a huge topic. It's a huge topic. Yeah. Oh, I see a lot of different things. I see a lot of still uncomfortability talking about it. So if I'm working with a male client and he's in an intimate relationship or in a marriage or something, it may be six months before the topic of of sex comes up. It takes a while. Now, when I have noticed, what I've noticed with my clients that are single is it comes up much faster. And with my clients that have like specific kinks that they're processing or feeling like they're dependent on porn or porn is impacting their ability to have a meaningful relationship with with a human, then it will come up quickly and that and that will be something that we process around. But I have noticed that when it comes to specifically what you were talking about, which I think is happening all over in relationships, that takes a while to come up, which is always really interesting to me because it is such a huge area of relationships and, and relationship satisfaction. And it's so interesting because, yeah, if, if you can't feel your feelings or have deep, intimate, vulnerable relationships. And sex is the one area where all of that stuff comes together. Trans, some level of transparency, like spiritual, physical, soul, spirit, all of that stuff comes in, into a sexual dynamic. It does make sense why that can take on such a life of its own that's so, so big. I think the sexual area is an area where I do have a lot of sympathy for my male clients because they'll get unknowingly, unconsciously involved, like especially with with porn and stuff, where it just becomes something that's so difficult to get out of. It's so constant, this feeling of wanting to be sexual or wanting to have sexual connection and, and it not being available in some sort of way, whether they're single And the dating scene is just way too skewed toward like the most masculine and attractive man who gets all of the women interested. And then if you're like an average attractive man, you just get no one like that's showing up a lot, actually, 
in my clientele. And it's so tragic. I'm sitting with attractive, successful clients who are dealing with no one wanting to date them and trying to make life choices around like, do I move? Do I, like, what do I do if I want to get married and have kids? And I, like, I don't get a single match online. What do I do? So I see that and then coupled with like, and then what do you do about your sexuality? If you're not dating anybody, do you not have any relationship toward pornography? Do you end up getting really hooked on it? What do you do? What do you do with all of that? So I do think that that's an area that has a lot more, even as I talk about it, I feel a little fuzzy. I feel like we're not even freely yet stepping into the real conversations about this. Like, I don't even know what the next level of real conversation is, but it feels a little fuzzy to me. Like there's something to come culturally around, wow, how do we support balanced, healthy, fulfilling sexuality for men and in relationships? In the tech age, how do we really support that and happening? What's that next movement that's wanting to come through? I mean, I feel that as you say that, that has gravity to me. And I think you're right. I think you're really picking up on the fact that there's a lot that we haven't figured out about how we're living our lives. And I can just mirror that experience, by the way. I have several times tried to get into dating apps and it's been such a miserable experience. Like it's been such a depressingly miserable experience being a man on dating apps. And the interesting thing is, and, and I don't know, maybe hopefully this might help some men out there. I don't consider myself to be a person who's had a lot of trouble dating. I've managed to, I've been fortunate to have had many relationships and in order to find those relationships, I had to find different ways of putting myself out there. So for me, the things that have tended to work are just being very social, going to a lot of gatherings, going to a lot of parties, going dancing, performing. Anytime you can get on stage, that's a really great way to make people notice you. And so it's made me realize a couple of things. One is that I think if I had just assumed that because apps are a big way that people are finding each other. If I just assumed that that's what I had to do, I would have walked away thinking I was a total loser. I would have just been like, well, I guess I'm ugly and I'm not charming enough. I don't know how to talk to people on the DMs because I don't, I'm terrible at DMing. That would have really damaged my self-esteem. And it also made me realize that I'm privileged to maybe live in an area where I have a lot of different options. Yeah, I can go dancing and I have a, you know, there's a style of dancing that I really enjoy. You know, if it was all just like Argentine tango in my area or whatever, <laughs> I don't know that I'd go dancing, you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. <laughs> so the fact that I have ecstatic dance, which is something that I really love, and the fact that I have some of these social networks that I built up over time that continue to allow me to meet new people, is a big privilege. It's a big privilege that I have. So I want to offer that to men listening to this who are in the same boat, mm. because I see you, it's, it's brutal. It's totally brutal. Sending out 
50 DMs and not getting a single response. <laughs> so awful. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to just quit, right? Mm-hmm. Who wouldn't want to just say, I'm going to be single for the rest of my life? It's so depressing. I think there's another layer that I wasn't even really aware of coming from the millennial generation that I come from. I've seen this with one, some of my younger male clients who are in their early to mid-20s, where they feel like they've been trained to be so respectful of women that they don't even make eye contact or act like they notice a woman at all in public. So if they're moving through the world, they're actively not noticing and not making eye contact with women. So if we take that, coupled with online dating, coupled with the fact that we seem to have lost, kind of in a widespread culture, this acceptance and encouragement toward real life meetups, like real life, like, oh, you see someone attractive that you kind of vibe with on some level and you approach them and say you'd love to take them out for coffee or that kind of stuff is becoming less and less common or like even seen as like a real option. I think unless you already feel some level of self-confidence or like, you know, you come from, okay, yeah, I've had, I've been desired by many people. I've had some successful experiences of intimate relationships. So therefore I can move towards something like that if I'm really feeling it. I think some men are coming with all of those pieces together, a fear of noticing women and being seen as creepy or intimidating or or not conscious in some way, coupled with like, well, you just don't even approach anyone ever, coupled with nobody likes them in the online world. And it just feels we're in like incel territory here, right? We're in like, wow, this intense suffering of being lonely and unwanted. That's the perception of that and not knowing what to do. You're right. It's like a perfect storm yeah, of avoidance and not feeling like you can have what you want, really, and not feeling like you deserve anything as well. I think a lot of men feel this tension where they're like, I want for women in the world to be able to like go to a coffee shop and not just have to get hit on all the time. I feel that way. I've definitely been in that boat where, yeah, I'm at the grocery store and I see a woman that I think is very attractive and maybe some part of me is like, go and talk to her, right? And then there's this other part of me that's like, she's just trying to get her freaking groceries, dude. <laughs> she's just trying to be in and out just like you and like... I want to live in a world where women aren't constantly harassed by random men, even if they're approaching in a respectful way, right? It must get really frustrating over time. What do men do about that? What, what, what are they supposed to do about it? I mean, I have so many thoughts. One thought <laughs> is, I think we're assuming that women get approached all the time. Okay. So if you are a woman of great beauty that fits all of our cultural standards, then yeah, if you are a woman like the men that we're talking about, not top tier competitive, but like an average, attractive, beautiful woman, 
I can't like for, like I think about myself for for example like I'm certainly not top tier but I'm like attractive and I've had lots of dating relationships and success being desired by men at different points in my life and I can't remember the last time I was approached it's been at least 12 years since I had anyone say anything to me other than like maybe like an older man who had like creepy energy like that still comes my way <laughs> so that's one I want to come back to that by the way I want to come back to that like I don't know maybe we're being a little overly cautious like it feels good to be a woman and to be approached and to be reminded that like you're desirable in the world that feels good I think it especially feels good if you feel like the energy you're being approached with is balanced and respectful. So if someone were to approach me and I could tell that they just liked me in yoga pants or something, then yeah, I'd be like, Ugh. or, you know, if I was in a bar and it was someone drunk, like there are ways that you don't want to be approached. But if someone approached me and I could see their face looking at my face and they were respectful and, and seemed interested in me as like a whole essence, then that feels good. So I think this is where some of that sexuality work ties in, is I do think for how we're raising the next generations, raising men that see women as whole beings and not simply as body parts, which social media is like really pushing hard into this body part thing. Like, let's just have a bunch of reels all of the time of women's body parts. They do this to us women, the algorithms of like all of the body parts of women, and they, they do this to men. So there is this big cultural push to keep seeing women as body parts and to keep this very dehumanized, unintegrated vision of women that I think we do need to be having a lot of conscious relationship around and like supporting future generations in being respectful and yet mobilizing toward like I have a vibe like I, I'm sure you felt this I felt this before where it's like you see someone it's not just their appearance you have a vibe and it makes you so it makes you nervous you get flustered you get all of these feelings because you have a vibe and yeah let's move toward that that sounds exciting you could be wrong and they could be uninterested and, and that's fine. And then you integrate that and you, you move on. But there is something about allowing yourself to be open to seeing relationship and intimacy and love and open hearted toward that, that I think it would be wonderful for us not to have fear around like being an open eyed, open hearted human being in the world. I don't want men to feel like I, as a woman, I'm going to be offended by that. I want them to be open-hearted and open-eyed. I just don't want them just looking at my butt or just looking, like, like making me a body part because that's something that that's not fair to me. I'm a human being. I really appreciate you said that, especially since another reason why I stopped using apps was that I actually found myself going down that road and not liking it. Mm. So I found myself, you know, I'd look at a picture of a person and first of all, some people look nothing like they do in their pictures, yeah. right? Like 
I'm not very photogenic. I'm really not, you know? And so I think that works against me in the dating world. Yeah. And after a while of browsing through all of these people, I started to feel like I was a girlfriend shopping on Amazon or something. And I hated it. And I noticed myself saying like, that person seems really lovely, but I just don't like their pics. And maybe if I'd run into them at a party, first of all, maybe they're not very photogenic. So maybe they look a lot better in person. And then I get their vibe and I like their vibe. And then, oh, actually we have some kind of sexual tension chemistry mm -hmm. that we had to be in the same room to experience. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And next thing... Next thing you know, you're totally grooving on someone mm -hmm. that you never would have if you'd just like seen some random picture and scrolled by them. What you're bringing this back to is people being in their bodies and being more in the wholeness of their experience. And, see, and when they're looking at someone else, seeing or trying to see more the wholeness of who they're looking at. I also hear you saying that it's less about what can you do for me and more like, what do we have together? Yes. I think if we were approaching connection in this way, we might just get connections that can last a little bit longer beyond the sexual honeymoon phase. Like if we were really moving toward each other as whole beings and it wasn't just most attractive, to us at that time, right? We're really moving toward each other as whole beings. I think there might be, there just might be something really rich in that kind of approach. And I think it's challenging to all of us because we've all been somewhat trained at this point to like scroll through photos and see who is the most attractive to us and move toward that person. So I think there's a lot of unlearning that would need to happen in order to move to this next evolution of like, wow, I want to, I want to get to experience someone in who they are before, I don't know if it's before, just in the process of deciding what's possible between us as human beings, you know? I love that. The whole dating thing is, that's a whole other direction we could probably spend an hour talking about. I really appreciate that we covered that because so many men are struggling with that right now. Well, and I do really appreciate and agree with your advice to put yourself in real world situations as frequently as you can, like have a social life and think about the kind of person that you're attracted to and where they might be and put yourself in those situations. Like you're drawn to someone artistic go to a pottery class or go get invested in that community in some way where you might meet people that really vibe with you. Because I do think that the, the online dating world is, I, I mean, I hear it from all genders that I work with that like, it is just deeply dissatisfying. There's so many problems happening with it and it can feel to people like the only option. So I do think there is a lot of like, let's support a movement back toward being whole-bodied people with other whole-bodied people and letting ourselves explore things with our senses and all of ourselves. 
If you've been enjoying the Gentleman podcast, I'd like to ask you for your help. Growing a community and an online presence takes a lot of participation from listeners such as yourself to really help things take off. If you value this show and it has been meaningful in your life, help me out by doing one of the following. Leaving me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen. Recommending it via word of mouth to your friends and family is another massive way that you can help this podcast grow. Following on social media and liking the content, Gentleman Podcast is our Instagram handle. You can also find us on YouTube at Gentleman Podcast, three words. I really appreciate your help and your support. It's one of the things that will help me to keep making this content and to keep making it better as well. Thank you. Okay, so before we wrap up here, you have some children and you have two boys that you're raising at the moment. I would just love to hear you talk about what are you thinking about in raising those boys? What what are the challenges you're running into? And specifically, because you have this perspective of these are some common male pitfalls, also just, you know, being a woman in the culture and, and having to grapple with male dominant culture and all this kind of stuff. What are you thinking about? Mm. And what's coming up? Yeah, so for context, my boys are uh, almost seven and five and a half. And honestly, like the main thing that has been such a surprise to me is how gender normative they are. So the cliches that you think of with little boys, they check every single box. It's like, I really believed that nurture was going to be more of an element than it is, at least for my particular children. So like my oldest, I mean, I could say a lot. I could say a lot about their different interests, but he currently is so into anything that involves violence, fighting play, crafting anything that's a weapon, I mean, it's like so different than how I would have chosen to like raise. So, you know, then that brings in all of these conversations of like, okay, what do we do with these interests? How do we support this in being an imaginative process that he is working through and not put any extra power into it? So I think we've had a lot of discussions around that in our home and with teachers and with our personal therapists and really trying to understand how do we raise this child who's so into like being big and he has a lot of protective instincts and he's very physical. He wants to wrestle and all of this stuff that is just like, wow, here we are. Here we are with all of this. And then my middle child... Can I, oh, go ahead. Can I jump in? I'm just curious, where do you think that's coming from? Does it really just feel like this kid came into the world wanting to express this? Or does it feel like maybe he's getting something from his peers that feels really juicy that he wasn't seeing in the home and that was really exciting? Or what do you think it is? Mm, I think it's a mixture of everything. I think... Okay. Um, he is a really intense, emotional person. He experiences things really big. So I always say he like came into the world screaming and then it was either screaming or laughing ever since. Like just 
really big, big emotions, which is like an interesting shadow piece for me to work through as a mom of this really big emotioned child. So I think there's just an intensity to him that is a piece of it. We have our children in Waldorf schools, so there is a lot less exposure to certain things than there would be in like a traditional public school situation. But there still is, you know, he might have a friend who's like super into Spider-Man or super into... He has been exposed to some of those themes, but it feels to me like his protective, his there's something, a protector in him that's very core. And that, you know, if I was to really look at any root cause other than his personality, it would probably be dynamics in our home, like his relationship to his dad and how he feels about his dad's relationship to me. That might be more of a breeding ground for some of this stuff, but we don't see any of the stuff from his brother. So there is some aspect of it that feels like his journey and he's our firstborn. So it feels like there's a lot of ancestral stuff that comes with your firstborn that you don't even realize is gonna necessarily come up when you start having children. So I think there's that piece that feels really surprising to me that we're in relationship with around. And then I think, you know, just coming from the experiences that I do come from and the perspective as a therapist, I just have a lot of interest in raising children that respect their bodies, that respect how their bodies communicate to them and are like in relationship to this idea of having felt experiences that make sense while also learning respectful boundaries toward others in relationships. So like sometimes, you know, our emotions get really big and we're in a moment where it's a great moment to feel these big emotions. And sometimes we need to like put a pin in it and feel that emotion later. Or sometimes we do need to go somewhere else and feel that emotion. So building some flexibility, not this idea that I think a lot of my clients have grown up with of like, you only get to feel your emotions in your room with the door closed, but some level of responsibility around the impact that we have on human beings with our emotional expression and building some skill sets around that. And then I think empathy is something that I think a lot about. And because there's some neurodivergence in the male side of my partner's line, that's a really big thing that I care a lot about, my boys being empathetic human beings. And I know that that's a developmental skill that we can hold space for and encourage and nurture and bolster as a child grows to really understand what it feels like and is like to be in relationship with each other and how we make kind decisions toward those relationships. Those are the things I think about the most. So you were starting to say that your younger son has a different expression. I'd be curious to hear <laughs> so about different. what direction he's moving in. Just like Tim the Tool Man. I mean, he is just... He's so different than my firstborn. He is, my firstborn's like somewhat social, but you have to have kind of a special bond with him for that to come out. My second born is like so charming. 
He wants to talk to every adult. He knows every adult's name and is leaning in a little bit to like the cliche mansplaining behaviors, like loves to give someone a tutorial on things, loves to tell someone how to do things. And it's just all about tools. He's a sensitive, big feeler, but all about tools. It's like, if we're gonna have meltdowns with him, it's because he wanted to play with dad's power tool and wasn't allowed to. And now we're having a lot of feelings about that. He's just very different. Some of that gender normative cliche stuff with him is just about power tools and working and the game that he plays is having his own business, like dad's business, you know, (laughs) you know, and then I have this little girl come into our world and she's everything that you would think a little girl would be. She spends all day long dressing and getting undressed and putting on fancy shoes and jewelry and that's her whole day and that's just what she likes I mean she's surrounded by Legos and power tools and she plays with some of those but she really just likes all of the girl stuff so it's been very interesting to me and I you know I have friends whose children certainly don't fall inside of these seemingly such rigid boxes, like what I'm describing my children to fall into. And I'm sure my children will go through all sorts of phases, but that's what I've noticed in their early life. That's just been very surprising to me. And I think we've really tried to build a home where there's fluidity and flexibility around who they get to be. We didn't stage the home with masculine things before our children were born. We've just followed their interests and I've tried to balance it out in other ways. The boys each have a doll that is their buddy. And like, we've tried to like be very encompassing and inviting and also just kind of follow what their natural interests are. Yeah. I love that you're doing both of those things because I think, for example, you know, my potentially almost militant feminist mother, she wasn't so fixated on her boys But she had this real, her girls were not going to have Barbies. And especially my older sister took the brunt of it. It was traumatic. It really was. My older sister had this kind of like, screw you mentality, at least for some of her life. I don't want to speak for her motives and why she decided to do the things she did. But my older sister, like she chopped off all of her hair at one point. You know, she dyed her hair. She wore dog collars. And part of that was just that it was cool to do that in the 90s. But I think, I I believe that there was a part of it that was like, screw you, mom. Like, I'm doing this how I want to do it. And then conversely, my little sister, she was like Barbie princess from day one. That was 100% who she wanted to be. And because my mother passed away when she was three, she, by and large, throughout her life, she got to express that. And I would say that there are ways in which she's better integrated because of that. I think that there are a lot of ways in which my little sister has had an easier path of expressing herself as a result of that. So that's really interesting for me to contrast those two experiences. Yeah, it is. Well, and I think it is so important. I mean, even if you have principles as a parent, which we all do, we all have ideas of what we don't want or want in our home. Like I probably am erring on the side of avoiding Barbies if I can, but we'll see. 
I think the big piece is that children need to play with identity themes. They need to. They need to dress up as all sorts of different people and genders. And like they need to do that. They need to have dolls that they can see themselves in and play around with the identity of and chop the hair off the doll. We need to be physically playing with the way that we experience ourselves in the world. And I think that one of the ways that we can serve our children is to try to create a container, a safe container, where they can freely, without there being any weight around it, just play, just play with their identity and explore what it feels like to be this and what it feels like to be this and what it feels like to be this without any of the adult consciousness coming into that play and trying to make meaning of it. Just letting it be natural. And that is one thing that I think I experienced growing up that I really value about my background is my parents really let us just explore whatever. So I could be, I was a tomboy for years. My sister was like the princess. You know, she would take her dolls out and brush their hair and put them back in the box. I was like, I was totally weird Barbie. I was shaving my Barbie's heads. I was piercing their ears. Like we were just playing. And there wasn't any meaning making around that. There wasn't any fear around it. We just got to express ourselves. And that's something that I've really wanted to impart to my children as well, is that freedom to just morph into different expressions of ourselves and feel what that feels like without shame or anything around it. And, you know, I've seen that with my clients. Like, I've had clients with core memories of being mocked or laughed at by a parent. They were in this moment of feeling something so alive for themselves and they were met in this way that just like created shame, got it like locked in, in that memory. So I think that's a big thing that I think is a gift we can, we can give our children. remembering there's a mutual friend of ours actually who has a son and I was talking with her once and I remember her saying she was in this such this uncomfortable parent moment where she was like my son is really fascinated by the Nazis right now Mm. and yeah I remember this too I have no idea what to do right (laughs) she's like she's like I don't just want to crush my son's interest in this especially since clearly he's picking up on the fact that this was a big deal. And I don't just want to be like, never look at that when never talking about that. That's mm-hmm. not a constructive way to approach this. Mm-hmm. So she's like, how do I foster my kids' interest in history? Mm-hmm. And how do I foster my kids' just... And power. That's a power exploration. Totally. There's nothing wrong with exploring power as a child. You're not bringing adult consciousness to it. It's a totally different thing. And I remember that as well. And I remember 
I remember her, you know, just making these cute little comments about him, like, playing in the neighborhood. And that was the one game he played. And there were a couple a couple kids who'd come over and play it with them, and they'd all play it together. I had no way of having an embodied relating to that at the time because I, I didn't have children. But there is so much as a parent about oh, tolerating the sensations of your children in the world, doing things that you didn't think that your children would do or be into, and just like breathing through it (laughs) and allowing them, trusting, just like we trust our body to like work through things and to evolve, like trusting the developmental wisdom of the body and this, the life path for this particular person and what their body is trying to work out as it's exposed to the world and developmental impulses to be in control or to have power or feeling powerless in certain ways and using the terms mental illness. I mean, there's so, so much like healing salve could be applied to ourselves if we learned to trust that our bodies are working through things and we can follow, we can find the thread of where our body is moving and try to follow it and see what is, what's trying to get worked out here and how do I jump aboard that? How do I support my body in not having these reincarnations of wounding to like do something new? And we get to like do that with our children. Our children are new. They're a step beyond our ancestral trauma. They're carrying some parts of it, but they're the next line of it. So it is interesting to try to be supporting that newness and supporting newness in ourselves and balancing all that we balance as complex human beings. (laughs) Well... In this moment, I'm appreciating your ability to hold and synthesize complexity. And yeah, I want to really appreciate you coming on this show. You've brought so much wisdom. With a lot of my favorite guests, I always feel like we've only cut, you know, covered 1% of the interesting things we could talk about. So I really appreciate your time. And it's been a pleasure having this conversation with you. Thank you. It's been wonderful to join you and to go down the rabbit hole of really trying to understand some angles of complex topics and how it relates to men and what men are, like what that next evolution is that is trying to happen in the healing of men in in this world. And I really, I really want that. I really want that for men to be freer in their bodies, to be more alive and have a deeper level of friendship with themselves. We need that. Our culture needs it. I agree. I'm committed to that. Thank you, Arjuna. Thank you. So real quick, do you have an online presence or is there anywhere that you'd like for people to find you if they want to follow up with you? Sure. I am not big on social media at the moment. I do have a website, which is Luminous Heart Wellness, which you can learn more about my practice and different offerings. Great. Thank you, Sarah. Take care. Thank you.